are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tomes. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Embodied. Discovery-driven. Methodically mystical. An active composer, performer, installation builder, and administrator, Jenna Lyle has worked with various ensembles and specialized in the performance of works by living composers. She has presented her own works as well as those of her colleagues throughout the U.S. and abroad, with performances recently by Chicago's Spectral Quartet, Mokrep, Northwestern University's Contemporary Music Ensemble, Loadbang, and the Riot Ensemble of London. Her artistic concerns are rooted in the unification of physicality with the creative process for the sake of immediacy, complexity of expression, and immediate exchange. Jenna is also co-founder and co-administrator of Parlor Tapes Plus, a new music cassette tape label and media performance collective based in Chicago. She holds degrees in composition from Northwestern University, Cleveland State University, and Birmingham Southern College, and curates and coordinates programming at the Arts Club of Chicago as programs manager. Thank you so much for for doing uh, this, for for agreeing to you know talk to me and be on the podcast. How I found you was I was listening to a piece on SoundCloud to prepare for another interview with uh, with Garrett Schumann, who we had Garrett. on earlier. Yeah. yeah, I actually I actually went to school with Garrett at Rice uh, Rice University down in cool. Texas before he went up to uh, U of M. Uh, so we had him on earlier, and I was writing my questions down, and I just kind of forgot to hit stop on his uh, piece, <laughs> and your piece. Uh, this piece that we're going to talk about first, <gasps> breath piece, was the first piece that came on. And I oh, stopped writing funny. my questions, and I immediately said, whoa, what is this? So <laughs> so tell me a little bit about this piece. It's called breath piece. What were the kind yeah. of the motivations behind it? Sure. Okay. Well, I think, first of all, I'm thanks, Garrett, for liking on like internet liking my yeah. piece because <laughs> that I think put it in his playlist. Yep. Um, but okay, so the inspirations for that piece. I was living in Cle nope. I used to live in Cleveland before I came to Chicago. And when I was living in Cleveland I worked a lot with a bassist named Scott Dixon. Great guy. He plays in the Cleveland Orchestra and he had asked for a piece for bass and there was a cellist he liked working with and me. So he wanted a trio of bass, cello and Jenna. And um, basically, I just kind of spent a lot of time talking with him about his instrument and how he approaches his instrument in particular. And at the time, he was uh, doing a lot of Feldenkrais work. And I know a little bit about Feldenkrais, but I basically learned about it through working on this piece with him. Um, I've had various other physical training practices in my background but this one was new to me and it's so now I'm not pretty, really yeah. I'm not really familiar with that either what what is that sure it's kind of in the family of like Alexander technique maybe so a way of approaching your instrument and approaching your body um, yeah a physical technique that you can apply to various different states of being and in his case it was to apply to the bass and uh, it's something that happened a lot for him was that he worked on connecting bow strokes to his breath and so like breath to arm arm to bow bow to bass and then like grounding himself 
Mm, okay. So a lot of grounding and a lot of connectivity between breath and movement. And so I think that's basically how the concept for the piece came about, because that was the thing that was on his mind with regard to his instrument at the time. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to pick up on something that you said that you said this was this was a piece for bass, cello, and Jenna. Yes. So explain that because you could have said a piece for bass, cello, and voice, but right. there's something different that you do. There is maybe something different. Actually, uh, there's a group at Neefnorf performing this piece this summer. And so I just had um, a voice lesson with this really awesome uh, vocalist, Elena Stabile, who is, she will be the first non Jenna vocalist to do this piece, <laughs> like this summer. And um, she's going to do great. I'm excited and nervous and all of the things uh, mm-hmm. that one can feel. Um, but yeah, I suppose I, I am a vocalist. I studied voice in all of my various academes. Uh, but I also have over time cultivated an extended voice practice. And at the time, I was um, very interested in uh, Philip Larson, this really mm-hmm. amazing vocalist who's in San Diego. And he had collaborated with Roger Reynolds a lot. And I was very obsessed with Philip's ability to separate the fry of his voice. So, like, control. Right the speed of the vocal cords flapping and touching one another and that was just really exciting i have still not mastered that but i'm getting a little bit better and so it was kind (laughs) of um how can i explore this for myself in a really methodical way and so it was also kind of a vocal exploration for me i mean i had been doing this as an improviser a lot anyway but there's one thing to improvise with these techniques and then there's another thing to prescribe them for yourself as they kind of come out of your intuitive consciousness. So taking the intuitive thing and then trying to dissect it logically and then prescribe it in a score. So one thing I was kind of curious about because in your bio you you uh, talk a lot about, you know, being mindful of the body and, you know, bringing the body into the compositional process. So did you also study dance at some point? I did. I did. Okay. When I was very small to, I guess, through the first few years of college, I was always in a dance class of some sort. Um, okay. Uh, I went to college for musical theater and was taking dance for that. Before that, I had been a gymnast and a cheerleader actually and but before that was in ballet and whatever so I've always Mm -hmm. looked at it I have no dance degrees so I'm very wary of calling myself a dancer because I know people get very proprietary about that term (laughs) um but I'm still I still take dance classes and I would call myself more of like an abstract movement artist than a dancer but it's certainly it's certainly a part of the of the way that I approach my work the, there's a section in this piece that starts around three minutes and 50 seconds or so that has it's just a series of like really big swells on using the cello and bass oh, and yeah yeah it was a good it was a good moment um and I hear this I hear this kind of in the context of 
particular movement that instructors used frequently in their warm-ups for the modern dance classes that I accompanied. I used to oh, accompany awesome. modern dance. And I think it was mostly like using the upper body and it was also it was about th- kind of throwing your weight and feeling the weight of your body. Is this kind of wave idea with the body? It's it's and then when is that something that kind of translated or did that moment kind of come from a breath uh like use like you say using the voice and controlling your voice right uh so in that section i'm actually doing nothing i'm not breathing i'm not doing anything that's entirely uh the instructions i've given in the score are bow when you breathe basically Mm, and okay and bow when you breathe naturally according to your own breath and then when you start to notice that your breath and bowing lines up with that of the other player transition to the next page and so and that kind of naturally just with uh, so the bassist in that recording is Scott Dixon and the cellist is um, Daniel Pereira who uh, he's also Cleveland based mm-hmm. um, and what we discovered was that uh, kind of bowing according to your breath uh, especially if you sort of have bigger lungs um, results in that little swell with each stroke so I don't know basically the natural physical process of bowing while thinking about your breath and the bows tend to be quite long um, that sort of resulted. Yeah, I can see you, so I see the yeah. Doing it. Okay, so yeah, Resu- I just did yeah. what you. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. you did it. Um, resulted in a little swell in the middle each time. Right. So it's kind of like a down bow with a breathe in, and an up bow with a breathe out. You know, just like uh, allowing. Up bow with a reversed? breathe in, down bow, oh, okay. breathe out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's interesting that you you were kind of inspired by a vocalist who does you know who controls the fry of his voice because this this particular moment translated onto the instrument instruments as kind of like I heard it as kind of a roar you know it was it was I, ferocious yeah well and it's nice because i think that well this was the beginning of a lot of things for me this piece and something i discovered while working with these you know really great super intuitive players was that when they are paying attention to their breath, and that's the thing that they're focusing on, there are other sort of more corporeal responses that happen. So if you're mm-hmm. focusing on your bre- on the breath and on your body, there is some animalistic thing that results sonically. Right. So it made me very interesting, interested in like watching and hearing the listening body. And so the listening to someone who's focusing on their body and then also watching someone who's listening to the sounds that their body is making. Okay. So that was kind of, that was interesting. Did that, has that kind of translated into a compositional process for you in later pieces? Yes, for sure. Um, my work, I, so for the last year, two years, I guess, I didn't write any pieces for instruments. They were all for bodies. So, um, Mm, okay. Yeah. (laughs) And so I get, it went really far actually. I'm back on instruments again this year though. Kind of don't know what's going to happen, but I'm You fell off the body wagon. I did. I, 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 I'm, I, I 
dove in deep and <laughs> and and now I'm I'm coming back out with with sort of a new affectation I suppose or new mm-hmm. uh, well it isn't new it's been you know since 2012 I guess 5 years in the making but right it's a uh, it will inform the other things because it was just a recording I could only imagine what was happening mm. um what was ha- what is your role when you're not making sound in this piece? I'm conducting and turning pages, and then also uh, opening and closing the chromatic gates on the bassist's C string. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> so it's like it's like bassist with assistant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and obviously, like uh, it was written for Scott's bass, which has uh, half tone, half step gates on, on mm-hmm. the lowest string. Breath seems to work as a structural signifier in this piece, kind of similar it to does. the vibraphone in music for 18 musicians. Or oh, is, it's yeah. kind of like a, a conductor in a way, like a, an aural conductor. Is that kind of how you were thinking about it when you wrote it? Uh, yes. I, f- I mean, everything comes from that and everything, basically the form comes from the idea of breath in one way. Uh, so structurally, yes, and then. Um, well, I, here's yeah. here's a question yeah. that I mean, is this is this piece very strictly notated? I mean, you said there was a section where it's, um, you know, just play as you breathe. So there is some aleatoric intent in there. So I, I guess it's like the way I heard it is is that you have these kind of sections of material, or uh, you have these textures, and it seems like the breath is the catalyst for moving on to the next section that's very right i mean um the only aleatory that happens nope there's two aleatoric sections and one is that breathe with your bow and then another is kind of a graphically notated um Mm. the big (gasps) and you hear the performers um scratching there's a really big right climax and that's all graphically notated for like how the bow is moving on the strings of the instrument but they do have time values um Mm -hmm. and also i guess in the other aleatoric section there are pitch values but everything else is actually very rigorously notated okay so i often wonder with a piece like this that's so closely linked to timbre and to texture what the working process is of the composer i mean how uh, you know when it's with our notation system it's impossible to to really be very very specific as to oh i want this growl with these kind of upper (laughs) partials coming out you know so how 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 did you start working how did you like what was your working process to take these ideas and then make them into sounds that people interpret through notation. Right, right. Um, So maybe that's best answered by describing kind of what my scores now look like. Mm, Um, They are nowadays basically just a spreadsheet of instructions, of verbal instructions. I dig it. All right. (laughs) right? And... uh, I think something that I did learn with breath piece was a that I'm so lazy that like looking <laughs> like going back to this piece I think like dang I worked so hard on that notation why did I work that hard right um, um 
And there were some things about it that I eventually, like, I notate certain things and they all happen. Everything I notate happens, but there's just such a, there's so much more complexity to the sound than I could ever anticipate with notation. So right. I devised a series of, I suppose, notated instructions for the performers to execute. And they were things that I knew would result in sounds that were more complex than mm-hmm. than the gesture. So there's this gesture that happens kind of in the first few pages where um, the bassist is playing like molto flautando on one string and ordinario on the other. So it's a double stop and, well, the bassist and the cellist actually are attempting to play with more pressure on one string and less on the other. And so it results in this kind of really, really uh, (laughs) intentional bow angle. And that often Mm -hmm. means that there are some harmonics that pop out. That means that there are going to be random uh, tremors from time to time because it's not a thing you usually do with your bow. Um, So where did that idea come from? The idea to do more pressure on one string than the other? Yeah, yeah. Um, Probably... I don't know. I actually think it came from me not knowing enough, enough about the bass. <laughs> you know, it came from me being like, "What could you? What, what, what if? if? You do, what if you did this? Yeah, wouldn't that be interesting?" And then Scott, being the the team player that he is, figured it out, and and we, I mean, it was it was an experiment, and and then it ended up being very beautiful. Yeah. That's always the best question for a composer: What if? Yeah, it's the best question for a composer, and I think performers like hate it. Yeah, hate to right. hear it. Like, oh, great, you have another. Well, what an, if? I, oh, some ideas. what are you gonna make me do? You got some some more ideas? Thanks. <laughs> I've only been studying this for twenty five years. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we're going to we're going to listen to this piece now, and the recording that we're going to hear features the performers you've been talking about so far. So uh, this is Scott Dixon on double bass. Danielle, uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce I'll, I'll tell you, Danielle Pereira. 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 All right, you got it. Yep, Danielle Pereira. <laughs> and of course, you, Jenna Lyle on voice.
So the next piece we're going to listen to, this key, this piece could just have easily been called Breath Piece 2. For I sure. Think. Yeah. With yeah, with your use of inhalations and ex, uh, exha- exhalations. Mm-hmm. Is that a word? Yeah, I think that's it is. A word. It is. But you use them in a compositionally meaningful way. So while I was listening, I, I thought uh, th- this occurred to me. Are these sound objects in are these the breathing? Is are is it a sound object in the most abstract sense, or or is it a sound that we should read with a kind of narrative built in? Mm. I think probably the former. Okay. I think the former. They, uh, when I was working on this piece, I was involved in this opera dance project by a composer named Ryan Ingebrigtsen and a choreographer named Erica Mott, and working a lot with a vocalist named Fetus Kruger. All right, so those people, they're, they're great. And uh, it was about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, uh, which was a garment factory that burned down at the turn of the century. Basically, mm-hmm. it was a big opera about the garment industry. The point is okay. that I died like three times in this show. And uh, I was doing a lot of shuddering, like shuddering. Yeah. <sighs> um, and I was thinking a lot about inhaling in that way and exhaling in that way or that was just something that was in my body so I think that maybe these pieces come about uh, based on whatever it is that my body is the most fixated on <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that this piece maybe came out of that idea of, of the shudder um, and again but I don't think it was narrative in this context maybe well, it's interesting that you're calling it a shudder because I interpret it as a shiver. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, it's we the listeners, we know the voice so yeah, well because yeah. it's the it's the thing we listen to for the majority of every day of our lives. So, it's difficult to hear it and not interpret a kind of something within a range of emotion. Right. So, right. for me, it, for me it's hard to hear that sound and interpret it as something other than a shivering sound. Mm. So, you know, there was a there was a moment um where I think you had the entire ensemble kind of inhale, but then then there's this pause. And that, you know, that it it means something, right? Mm. Mhm. Mhm. So, maybe not a, you know, like Oh well, this this breath like you're not telling a story, but there's still there's intent. I feel like behind each particular gesture, other than just using it as abstractly, because that inhale <gasps> that that creates a a big sense of tension that is then released when they come in with the instruments. I feel like oh, an antecedents, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I th- um. <clears throat> I I both love and hate the capacity of the voice to do that, <laughs> right? Um, there are a lot of people who actually, upon hearing breath piece, you know, hear a woman making uh, non-operatic vocal sounds in a piece of music and it's perceived as erotic, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and in this piece, in MPs, it gives sort of a... It's a 
do do your own adventure. Build your own mm. narrative as you hear it, I suppose. Okay. Um, there was nothing that I intended specifically. A lot of those sounds were also like the inhaling ones. <laughs> those things. Oh, that's a great moment. It's so good. Yes. Ken Kumpf is really good in that moment. Your sound, or sorry, his sound Mm -hmm. um, kind of coalesces with the, is it the trumpet or the? It is, it's the trumpet. It's the trumpet. It's so good. He does such a great job. Both of them do. Um, That came from, I think I was was washing a dish. I was like washing a a, a pie plate or something and rubbing my... Okay. Rubbing my hands uh, right. along the bottom of the ceramic pie plate, and it made that sound when there was water in it. I don't know. And that's, I thought it was interesting, and was like, oh, this combination of instruments could actually make something similar, and that would be really cool. Yeah. And I think so I also, awesome. like, sent this, re- I recorded myself making this stupid dishwashing sound and sent it to someone because <laughs> I thought it was neat. Your piece, or your the pieces that we're listening to, exhibits kind of an interest in the human voice and the human and the human body. Mm. Is it fair to say that you compose music for you compose music for people? Yeah. Some composers are writing sounds to be expressed largely by kind of invisible performers. Mm. It's kind of like just close your eyes and listen, but whoever is making the sound doesn't really add too much to the performance but it seems like that you are trying to curate an experience that takes into account more senses than just hearing is that fair oh yeah thank you that's very that's such a nice thing to say yes that's the nicest thing anyone ever said oh well (laughs) so when when you are working this piece was originally written for load bang right yeah Yep. Yeah. I mean, you see this instrumentation and it's impossible to right, think right. about anyone else <laughs> yeah. than Load Bang. Um, so how did you meet them and what was your what was your working process with them, your your interaction while you were writing the piece? Sure. Um, I actually didn't have a lot of interaction with them while I was writing it. Um, but they it was in my penultimate year at Northwestern and they were uh, artists in residence. So I was working mm-hmm. with them that way and uh i talked a lot with my friends who are instrumentalists who live in chicago um so jeff kimmel who's a bass clarinetist and improviser in chicago worked a lot with me on the bass clarinet part i worked a lot on the voice part uh nick yeah that makes sense (laughs) yeah yeah and uh nick maryhugh who is the trombonist on the recording i sent you uh, he worked mm-hmm. a lot with me on the trombone part, and I spoke a lot, actually not with a trumpet player, so sorry, Andy Kozar. I spoke with uh, with Matthew Oliphant about the trumpet part, actually. He's a horn okay. player, but basically it was a lot of asking friends for advice, um, and I guess since I wasn't working with them so regularly and I didn't have regular access to their instruments this piece sort of takes on this quality of it's not solely about the instruments it's very much about the interpersonal dynamics like um, basically something that you can't hear in the recording everyone that they're arranged in a way where everyone has a part of their core touching another person 
That's really interesting because, okay, so continue, but I, I have something. Sure, that. sure. So like someone's shoulder may be in someone else's shoulder blades. Someone's chest may be touching someone's arm, etc. So everyone is in kind of very close contact and they don't ever look at one another for cues. So nobody really has a direct eye line. No one is looking at one another, so all the cues come from a collective breath. So, and, and that's where, that, that's kind of what I wanted to experiment with, was how can you do this uh, with only your sense of one another to guide you for entrances? So there are all those yeah. unisons, and there are these little pointillistic moments, and... There are these sustains, um, and everything is cued by, like, a decision that they all sort of make without actually verbally or visually communicating it. It's all comes from their core. That so, is so cool. Oh, like, yeah. You, you, you're essentially creating a human sculpture that makes sound four different, well, more than four, but at least four different ways. It, that does kind of happen. Uh, my colleague Juwan told me that it looked they looked like a monster. <laughs> also, because they are doing a lot of these unisons where they do sound a little bit uh, monstrous or roary. That, uh -huh. was, that was interesting. But yeah, I like they... the idea of this carries over from breath piece as well that I enjoy yeah. the idea of like creating a meta instrument out of a group of people. Do they hold that position the whole time, or are they, they moving? They do. Or? No, they hold it the wow. whole time. Yeah. That, you, you must have like worked with them to find a comfortable position, because I can't imagine playing a 10-minute piece and not ever moving. Right. Uh, I mean, they move, they breathe, right? But sure. um, Yeah, I think when I first came in, I had one idea for how the trombonist could, should be, and then just because I never had all of these people together at once... Uh, we had to kind of rearrange it so nobody got smacked in the face with the slide. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would, that would right. be something. <laughs> and then I guess what is nice is uh, the score is kind of, it's graphic. And uh -huh. where there are pitches, I kind of give a little staff Aussie up image that says B between these pitches here. Um, and so, like, it's a score of instructions and then... When the piece actually becomes is when I'm able to just kind of get in there and like work with the performers and talk up and find the way that this piece fits into their body and their instrument and the way that they all kind of live together in this arrangement. Right. So the thing that I was uh, that I was going to say, when, uh, which so surprised me when you said they're all touching each other, is as I was listening, it kind of occurred to me that this piece might be kind of cool with the musicians actually far apart from each other like oh. surrounding surrounding the audience in a way because it seems like each member participates in the breath sound in some way so you could kind of create a surround uh surround sound moment but obviously i don't think that would work now that i've heard how it's how it's really <laughs> supposed to go but that thought drew me to this memory that i had had of uh participating in a pauline Oliveros deep listening workshop mm. so without being presumptuous, I'm I'm just wondering who, if anyone, has been an influence 
on you, either musically or non-musically? Oh, I mean, Pauline Oliveros for sure, since I was like 20, I guess. Obviously, you know, Philip Larson, as I said. Um, uh, Pierluigi Bellone, I spent a lot of time studying his work. I actually wrote my dissertation on a piece of his. And okay. what I like about Bellone is that every piece of his very much also comes from his body. Mm, um, okay. I don't, maybe not every piece, I'm not sure, but uh, he likes to be able to touch everything that he's writing for. And um, you can see sort of his intuitive sense of himself uh, in his writing for instruments that he maybe doesn't play. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's nice to see that translation from like one person's body to like a different person's body. Right. So, uh, I've been influenced a lot by Bellone's process. We actually, Um, I interviewed a, uh, I interviewed a composer early on in this year. Uh, his name is Dan Trampty. Yeah, Dan! You know Dan? I do. He he does some of that too. Like he wrote a piece for saxophone and percussion, and he himself is a percussionist, so right. that yeah. wasn't a big stretch. But he he told me like he just got a saxophone and started yeah. making sound, and you know like videotaping himself as he was right. doing it, so he could see exactly where his fingers were and, right. and everything. And that was that was very. I mean, that's that's a really interesting idea because you are you are exploring it as. It, it's unfair to say that you're that he's a novice. He just right. he's he's a musician that just doesn't play that, but he's bringing right. all this other experience into it to create something that someone who, like we were saying before, oh, what do you, you know the the player? What are you going to have me do now after I've spent twenty sure. years learning my instrument? But that that kind of pushes the uh, the field of techniques forward from like a very uh kind of inquisitive and experimental manner so so you you're saying you do some of that as well um i when i can actually get my hands on the instrument yes (laughs) um maybe not in i don't i well i do i actually i make a lot of videos but they tend to i make videos for every piece huh dan and i have something in common (laughs) um i I, but i guess maybe for me it's more that uh my the way that i think about the pieces i'm writing comes from my sense of my own body um okay yeah. yeah and oh i suppose i think i'm also influenced a lot by do you know palabolas dance theater uh no where are they located they where are they i'm gonna just say europe um <laughs> that's a big but, place right okay. right it's big <laughs> but uh they are they sort of build sculptures out of bodies and sometimes mm-hmm. these sculptures have moving parts or at least that's what they used to do ages ago i'm not sure what they do now um right. but this idea of the of the sculpture yeah actually yeah. another we i've only ever had uh one well I, I sometimes have people who are not composers or not musicians on this. And uh, the uh, one uh, choreographer and dancer I had on, Lydia Hance, who's located down in Houston, Texas, she does a lot of body work in that same way, 
where there are there's connection there's uh and and you can think about it as as a moving sculpture so um you we should uh say what the tile is about it's called empies so what 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 is that yeah uh well because i wanted to make a piece about connection and about acting only when you feel an impulse from another person um I guess it was about empathy, and mm-hmm. I was living with um, a couple of friends at the time, one of whom is Andrew Tom, who is a very interesting person and composer and performer, and he, he had a habit that year of abbreviating every word that he said. <laughs> Totes. Yeah, yeah, and so I just kind of <laughs> asked him, how he would say that word and that's what came out (laughs) (laughs) so uh yeah i mean you you have to have some mps for people yes that's exactly how he would have said it yeah (laughs) that's hilarious yeah so So we're gonna listen to that piece now and the recording we are going to hear uh i'm gonna let you say the names because i screwed up the last one so bad okay uh the the Baritone is Ken Kumpf. The bass clarinetist is Emily Beisel. The trombonist is Nick Maryhugh. And the trumpet player is Dana Morrison.
So now I'll, uh, I'll ask you the last question that I always ask every composer or artist or whoever, really, that I have on the podcast is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Oh, uh, I wanted to be Reba McIntyre when I was nice. very little. And I think that was what did it. The queen of country music was my inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still listen to Reba. I know I on occasion sing country music, though not in a public forum, mm -hmm. though I haven't been asked. So you never know. Um, well, it well maybe uh, this is this an is, opening. This is a, an all, a call calling all country music producers. Just 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 give me a ring, and I I have quite a twang when when called We're upon. Where are you from originally? I'm from Carrollton, Georgia. Uh, te okay. Technically, Roopville, Georgia, but mm -hmm. yes, rural Georgia. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then, so did you did you learn uh, guitar or something as a kid, or? No, I did not. I. You just wanted I, to sing like I Reba. Just wanted to sing like Reba, and then I was also in a lot of theater. And I think the first like public performance I had was I sang. Swing low, sweet chariot in my parents' church, and the pastor gave me the pulpit. So I was standing in the pulpit at my family's tiny, you know, one-room church in Lowell, Georgia, singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, unaccompanied as a six-year-old. Wow. Yeah. So what are your, what are your current projects right now? Sure. Uh... Well, I do have like a job, so I'm nine to fiving it at the Arts Club of Chicago curating programming, which is really mm -hmm. fun. Um, so part of my, one of my projects is just being aware of interesting things. And okay. then uh, my personal projects are, uh, I'm working on a piece with the bass clarinetist Alejandro Acierto that will be, he Ooh. should... Played with Loadbang. He used to, yes. Yeah. He's in Chicago now playing with Dal Niente, and he also has like a um, an artist in residency at Michigan State this year. So we're working uh -huh. on a thing. Um, I am writing a piece for Katinka Klein. She's a cellist with the CSO, and she's wonderful, and we're going to make a thing. And... Um, and I'm writing a piece for toy viola and toy piano. Toy viola? Yes. Toy viola, toy piano. What is that? It seems plastic and and cheap and like it doesn't hold a tune on the strings. Okay. Yep. All right. Yep, yep. And then um, probably something. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> writing a, a trumpet. And elect uh, no trombone and electronics and and video thing. This is sort of a dual collaboration with Weston Olenke, it's a trump a trombonist. And then uh, my longtime collaborator Jess Azodi. She's a mezzo soprano and a actor and really spectacular person. She and I have been working on a piece for the two of us that we've performed a lot. And every time we do it, it changes a little bit um and we'll we'll do that in in uh, in bendigo australia in, in august nice 
Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, that, that all sounds great. So uh, before we go, where can people find you online to check out your music or connect with you? Oh, the perfect country music name, Jenna Marie Lyle dot com. Right. It's just begging, <laughs> that's to, pretty... begging to have a country album. Yeah, you should. I mean, you should just do it. Why I not? Should just right? make it. That's. That's I scratch all that other stuff. I'm clearing my schedule. I'm going country. I'm making my, my country album this year. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna do. Awesome. Well thank you so much for doing this, Jenna. Yeah, thank you, Robert. This was fun. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.